If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn once again to the Gospel of John and to chapter 18. John chapter 18, and we are, we are on a journey together through the last part of John's Gospel. And uh, we've been on that journey now for a couple of weeks, and we are looking at it in this regard. We are looking, looking toward and forward to the cross and then ultimately to the empty tomb. And, and as I stated at the beginning my, of, of this sermon series, my goal is that in, in working through these passages in John's Gospel, that our hearts will be properly prepared and that we may be made spiritually ready to be able to truly celebrate the resurrection of our Savior because we have properly understood what His sacrifice accomplishes for us. That's, that's really the, the stated purpose and goal for the time that we're going to spend in these, in these various passages. And in our time together last week, we read about Jesus' betrayal by Judas and, and His arrest by this large multitude of people that came down from the city of Jerusalem. These were, these were people who were, were both uh, Roman soldiers and, and also Jewish temple police who came down to arrest Jesus. They had come down to the garden that, that John talks about Jesus and His disciples being in, a place where the other gospel writers refer to as Gethsemane. And as I pointed out last week, I hasten to remind you again this week that all that we see happen to Jesus, from His betrayal to, to His arrest, to His trial, to the abuse that was inflicted upon Him, to His crucifixion, all of that makes us maybe shake our heads in disbelief at the way that the Lord was mistreated. And, and, and though we may become incensed with anger over the unfairness of His trial and the dishonesty of His accusers, and even though we may become grieved to our very souls when we think about the brutality that was inflicted upon Him and even the fact that He was crucified on the cross, we must nevertheless not mistake the fact that Jesus was majestically in charge and in command of everything that happened to Him. He was not dragged kicking and screaming to the cross against His will. No. He went there willingly and He went there in full obedience to the will of His heavenly Father and out of love for hopeless and helpless sinners like you and me. And so when we left Jesus last week, we left hearing His words of rebuke against Peter, His disciple, who had just lopped off the ear of a man named Malchus, who was one of the servants of the high priest. And Jesus had seen him do that and told Peter to put away his sword. And then He says this, Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? And with that, Jesus was arrested, He was bound, and He was taken to the house of a man named Annas, who we read was the father-in-law of another man named Caiaphas, who the Scriptures reveal to us that year was the high priest. And that's where we want to pick up this morning, beginning in verse 15. So read along with me in your copy of the Scriptures there. The Bible says, and Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. 
Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now, the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore, they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him, whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us, and we thank you for this beautiful day that you have given to us, a day that is really truly a gift because we are able to come to gather together as the people of God around the Word of God to hear the, to hear the Spirit of God speaking to us. So I pray that our eyes and our ears and our hearts would be open to that which you would choose to reveal to us this morning, that we would apply these truths to our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Um. Today's my day to get to pick on Ted because he doesn't have a mic, so I can pick on him. Um, but I, I get to pick on him a little bit today because he tends to he tends to tell me that I'm prone to use uh, multiple syllabic words that he calls fifty cent words. They're just long words sometimes, and I like to use some of those occasionally just to see if I know how to use them, but to see if he knows what they are. And I'm going to use one here, Ted. So I want you to know um, the word is intercalation. Now, that word doesn't really mean a whole lot, but it's exactly what's happening in the text that I just read for you. The word intercalation really means sandwiching. It's the means by which a writer takes two separate stories and combines them into one, and he does it interestingly by taking one of those stories and breaking it apart into two pieces, and he takes the second one and shoves it in the middle and puts it all together into a sandwich. That's intercalation. And that's exactly what John does here. And he does it for a purpose. The purpose is you take these two stories that independently tell you something, but when you put them together in such a form as John has done it, those stories actually comment on one another and expand the meaning of one another so that you walk away with an even greater understanding of what's occurring than if you just looked at each one individually. And what, what John has done is he's taking the, the, the story of, of Jesus where he is being interrogated by Annas, the high priest, and he's inserted that in the middle. He sandwiched it in between 
the three separate denials that Jesus, that, that Peter uh, engaged in when he was denying the Lord as being his Lord. So that's what's occurring here, and I want to be able to show you why that's so important in our text. But let me just say to you up front, that makes for outlining a text very difficult because it, it's hard to put an outline on paper that actually flows from that. So you have to kind of approach it a different way, and that's what we're going to do today. So don't get too excited about filling anything in yet because there's nothing yet to do. All I want you to know right up front is that there's two main characters in this text that are being compared and contrasted one to another. The first one is Jesus. The second one is Peter. I want us to focus on what we understand about Jesus first. Right up front, there, there arises from our passage a little bit of confusion. I don't know if you picked up on it when I was reading it, but you'll notice that back in verse 13, back in verse 13, we read that Jesus was led to Annas' house and he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. However, you'll notice also down in verse 19 of what I read to you, you'll notice that we read that while he was at Annas' house, John says the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. You'll also notice in verse 22 that when Jesus replied to Annas' question, a servant didn't like the way that Jesus responded. And so he slapped Jesus across the face. And then he said this, Do you answer the high priest like that? But then, read down with me in verse 24, Annas had Jesus bound and sent to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, if you're reading through that, if you get a little confused, I got a little confused too. Which one of these guys is actually the high priest? Is it Annas or is it Caiaphas? He goes to Annas' house first. He's called the high priest. Then Annas sends him to Caiaphas. He's also named the high priest. Who was the high priest? Well, a little bit of background may help us understand what's going on here. Annas had actually been the high priest for quite a number of years back during the, the turn of the, that uh, first century there. And, but he, he served in that role until he was forcefully deposed from his position by Rome. But he nevertheless continued to exert a tremendous amount of influence over the Jews and over their religious system. In fact, Annas served as sort of, the, sort of what we might call the godfather. He had that godfather role over the priesthood. In fact, five of Annas' sons all served as the Jewish high priest, one after the next after the next. And then we read here that he had a daughter who married Caiaphas, and so Caiaphas even came up as his son-in-law and served as the high priest. So it's not too difficult for us to imagine that, that Annas was one of the ones behind the scenes pulling a lot of the strings. He was still considered the high priest. In fact, it was customary for a high priest to always have like a lifelong appointment. Even if he didn't serve in that role, they still referred to him as the high priest. Now, the reason that I point all of that out to you and bring it to your attention is that when we're reading John's gospel, you'll notice that there are a lot of details that he doesn't focus on that the other gospel writers do. John doesn't really give us any of the details of, of Caiaphas' interview with Jesus and his interrogation of Jesus. We don't get a lot of that information with John. That's because John is interested in us noticing that Jesus is being bounced back and forth between these two men who were known as the high priest. It should be pointed out that according to Old Testament law, the title high priest 
was given to the person who was responsible for representing the people to God. It was given to the one who was responsible, according to the book of Leviticus, who the only one who could enter into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for himself and for the people. He was the one person who was able to offer sacrifices, not only for the sins of the priest, but also for himself. Yet by the time of Jesus, the high priest was little more than a chief administrator who collected temple taxes and he served as the political head of the nation. On this particular night, from John's account and combined with that which we read in the other Gospels, we see the Annas and Caiaphas in their honorary or in their real role as high priest, they acted also as prosecuting attorney and judge. In that regard, we recognize the sad irony of this scene. I hope you can see it. You see, as the whole of John's gospel communicates to us, and as the rest of Scripture goes on to communicate to us, Jesus Christ is the true and only true and real high priest. The writer of Hebrews recognizes this true nature of Christ's priesthood in comparison with all of the others who once held that title. Speaking of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 26. He says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. That leads me to the first point, which is really a summary statement that I want you to see. It's a thought that you come to when you begin to examine this text. And when you do, what we're learning about Jesus that John teaches us here is this. He's the high priest who was not treated like one. In this text, we see that Jesus is the true high priest, but He wasn't treated like one. I want you to notice with me, though, that, that Annas may have had the honorary title, of high priest, but there's no doubt who the true high priest is. Consider the fact that Jesus is bound. He's under question. They're questioning him about his disciples. They're wanting to find out, is he trying to stir up all kinds of trouble? What kind of doctrine is he teaching? Yet it is Jesus who actually puts Annas on the defense. With regard to the question put before him, Jesus replies this. He says, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews always meet. In secret, I've said nothing. Why do you ask me these questions? Why don't you go ask my disciples? Why don't you go ask the people that I taught? They will tell you what I've taught. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're spending your time interrogating me, but you're not giving me any chance to have witnesses on my account. Go to the ones that have been my disciples. They will be my witnesses. Jesus is asking for a fair trial, but He's not given one. But I want you to notice once again what happens when Jesus speaks to His own defense there in verse 22. When He'd said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of His hand saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? You know, many have uh, pointed out the illegality of such a blow being administered to a defendant. But 
The more important point to consider, I believe, is the simple, sad irony of the fact that this servant who slaps Jesus does so because he believes that Jesus is being disrespectful and dishonoring to Annas, the honorary high priest. When in fact, the question that he asks, is that how you treat the high priest, should have been a question that was asked of him. Is slapping the Lord Jesus how you are to treat the one and only true high priest? Jesus is the high priest, but he's not treated like that. And of course, this is only the beginning. As we know from what's coming, the treatment that Jesus endured that night was far from that which is worthy of the true high priest. He would be beaten, he would be mocked, he would be ridiculed, he would be spat upon, he would be maligned, and he would ultimately be crucified. But all of that would occur so that he could be both the one who offered the sacrifice and become that sacrifice himself. But notice with me, as I pointed out at the outset, that, that by the way that John has organized this passage. He has taken everything that we've discussed so far about Jesus and he's put it in the middle of these, these two different parts that tell us the story of Peter. Peter is outside. Peter's out in the courtyard undergoing his own interrogation while Jesus is inside undergoing his interrogation from Annas. Peter's story is told in two parts. In the first part, we read that Peter and another unnamed disciple who most modern scholarship attests to be John. Um, it's possible that it could be someone besides John, but we'll leave that argument for another time. Let's assume for the sake of argument that it was John, is the one who accompanies Peter into this courtyard. John somehow or another is known by the high priest, and so he gains entrance into the courtyard, but Peter is not as well known. And so it takes John coming back to talk to the girl who's keeping the gate to, uh, to attest to the fact that Peter can come in. And she allows him in. But before he walks in, the girl looks at Peter and says, you're not one of this man's disciples too, are you? And Peter's immediate, yet I would suggest unexpected response, is, I am not. Now, I say that Peter's response is unexpected. And the reason I say that is because according to this text, it was just, just a short time earlier that Peter had drawn his sword, remember, in the garden and had swung it and lopped off the ear of that servant of the high priest named Malchus. In the garden, Peter had readily identified himself with Jesus. But now here in the courtyard of the home of the high priest, Peter denies his discipleship. He denies having a relationship with Jesus. Perhaps we shouldn't be so surprised, though, by Peter's denial. I mean, after all, only hours earlier, Jesus had told Peter this is exactly what would happen. Hours earlier, in John, according to John 13, Jesus had said to his disciples, look, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you can't come. Peter said, why can't I come, Lord? I want to come with you. I will even lay down my life with you. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus said, really? You would lay down your life for me, Peter? Listen, before the rooster crows, Peter, you will deny me three times. Well, now here, whether it's for personal protection, whether it was out of embarrassment, 
Maybe it was just simple, plain old fear. Peter fulfills what the Lord Jesus had said, and he denies being one of Christ's disciples. The next scene pictures Peter standing beside a charcoal fire. Evidently, it was a chilly evening, and so someone had made a fire. Peter edged up to it. Surrounding that fire were the servants of the officers of the high priest. Based upon the fact that Peter is later recognized by one of them, at least gives us indication that some, if not all of those, gathered around warming themselves around that fire had been a part of the party who had come to arrest Jesus just, just a short while earlier. It's at this point that, that John cuts to camera two. And in camera two, that's where we get the story of Jesus being interrogated by Annas. But then down in verse 25, we come back to Peter again. And remember, in John's narrative, Jesus has just defended himself against the questions of the high priest. And he's just said, why don't you ask my disciples about what I've taught them? They'll stand up and tell you everything you need to know about what I've said and about me. And so John cuts back to Peter, his disciple outside in the courtyard, who is then asked for a second time, you are not one of his disciples, are you? To which Peter again responds, I am not. And then a third time, this time by a relative of Malchus who had had his ear cut off, he catches a glimpse of Peter in the firelight there and he recognizes him. He says, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter denies his association. He denies his discipleship once again. And in the other gospel accounts, we hear that, that Peter began to call down curses upon himself if what he said was not true. Such an utterly amazing, disheartening, and sad turn of events. I mentioned at the outset that our study, John has composed this narrative intentionally to cause us to see the irony of what is taking place. Edward Clink has pointed out this way. He says, at the very moment that Peter was denying Jesus while sharing in the warmth and the fellowship of the temple servants, just some distance away stood Jesus with hands bound inside a chamber with the high priest, claiming that his disciples were reliable witnesses to his teaching and therefore to his identity. Sadly, at that very moment, Peter is failing in his role as Jesus' disciple. That leads me to the second summary statement that I want you to see from this text. You see, if Jesus was the true high priest who was not treated like one, then we also have to see that Peter, well, he's the disciple who did not act like one. Peter's the disciple who did not act. Without doubt, Peter calling down curses and denying his Lord is one of the saddest pictures that occurs on that night. And what makes this picture even sadder still is the fact that it is a scene that has been replayed and reenacted over and over and over and over and over again since that night right up until this very day. You see, we might be quick to criticize Peter. His name is Petros. It means rock. We might criticize him because we see him crumble into the pile of sand there in the courtyard of the high priest. And certainly there's no way that we can excuse what Peter did. 
But in our disdain and our criticism of him, we must acknowledge how much like Peter we are. I am ashamed to say that there have been moments in my life, particularly when I was younger, when having a good time and being accepted by those that I wanted to be my friends was more important to me than living a life that gave testimony to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I am ashamed to stand before you and tell you that fear, coupled with a desire to be accepted, it shut my mouth. And as a result... Though I was a disciple of Jesus, I did not act like that. I will not ask you for a show of hands. I wouldn't embarrass you for anything. But let me ask you, have you found yourself in similar situations in your life? Has fear caused you to abandon your responsibility to a living, breathing, acting, witnessing testimony? to the person and the work of Jesus Christ? Listen, I want you to know fear can cause lips to shut tight and hands and feet to stop moving in the service of Christ. You and I must not miss how this passage applies directly to our own lives. Based upon what we see occur here with Peter, we should be challenged to stand boldly with Jesus regardless of opposition. With regard to what we see occur here with Peter, one has written that the real test of our discipleship is what we say and what we do when we are under pressure to take a stand for Christ. David Garland has said this, few today are forced to choose between Christ and imprisonment or execution. Consequently, our denials of Christ may take a more subtle form, such as timid silence. We may not want to be identified as Christians because we do not want to be jeered by others or to rock any boats. D.A. Carson, he has stated this, some Christians want just enough of Christ to be identified with Him, but not enough to be seriously inconvenienced. Listen, Jesus said that if anyone desired to be His disciple, He must leave everything. He must turn loose of all the other things that He's grabbing onto in life, and He must come and take up His cross daily and follow Him. That's the words of Christ. Therefore, we must be careful that in our fear and our desire for comfort, we do not implicitly act in the same way that Peter acted explicitly. We must not live in such a way as that we deny our Lord. This passage challenges us to stand boldly with Jesus regardless of our opposition. And to that, I would add this. I would add this thought for your consideration. You see, we must recognize the challenge that we have before us to stand boldly with Jesus regardless of the opposition because one day we will stand before Him who is our great high priest. You see, the irony is that Annas and later Caiaphas, they were the high priest who rejected every bit of the evidence that was presented to them that Jesus truly was the Son of God. 
They were men who had their minds made up about Jesus before this trial ever began. And they thought that they had all the power that they wanted and they could do anything that they wanted to do to finally get rid of Jesus and never have to deal with Him again. And consequently, these so-called high priests passed judgment on the one who is the true high priest, the one that the Bible says will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. And the reality of that is that his judicial authority will be exercised over every single one of us as well. And with that reality in front of us, we need to recognize that not only is Peter's failure been repeated again and again and again and again all throughout history, I would suggest to you that the trial of Jesus is also repeated again and again and again. You see, in many respects, Jesus Christ is still on trial, but He's on trial within the courtrooms of our own hearts. Each of us will have to answer the question, is Jesus who He claims to be and who the Bible reveals Him to be? Unfortunately, many reject Jesus out of hand. They, they have their minds made up about Him before the trial even begins. They, they say He can't be who He says He is. Or they may say, well, He was a good man and a good teacher, but He's certainly not God. Or maybe they will even go so far to say, well, He is one of the gods, but there's plenty of them out there. Regardless, the Scriptures declare Him to be the one true God that He is the second person of the Trinity, that He is God of very God, and the Bible proclaims Him clearly that one day every single man, woman, boy, and girl will stand before Him to be judged, and our eternal destiny will be determined by whether or not we have placed our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us will stand before the great and true high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this passage, John has presented us with two pictures today. It's a picture of Jesus as the great high priest who was not treated as one. And he's presented us with a picture of Peter, who though he was a disciple, did not act like one. And in Luke's account of Peter's failure, he tells us that when the rooster crowed, somehow or another, from wherever they were at, Peter's eyes and Jesus' eyes met. And at that moment, Peter was overwhelmed with bitterness. And he wept bitterly. And he ran out of the courtyard. And were the story to end right there, it would be an awful, depressing, and gloomy story of failure. Thankfully, the story does not end there. You see, as John goes on to tell us, though Peter failed Jesus... Jesus didn't fail Peter. In fact, Jesus would fulfill His mission for which He had been sent. He would go on to become the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who suffered and was condemned to die. And He willingly laid down His life, going to the cross and being crucified so that lost, guilty, vile, rotten sinners like you and I might be saved. Were it not for Jesus... Were it not for His atoning sacrifice, none of us would have any hope. But the good news is this story is that it doesn't even end there. You see, in the final chapter of John's Gospel, we see Jesus and we see Peter gathered around another charcoal fire there in John 21. And at that fire, their eyes met again. Only this time, the tears of Peter 
are replaced by the words, the tender, compassionate words of Jesus who reconciles with Peter. And he reinstates Peter. And he commissions Peter to be the one that he would send out to minister and to serve his sheep. And he sent Peter out to do these two things. He sent him out to feed sheep and to love sheep. Did Peter deserve that forgiveness and that mercy? Had he earned it in some way? Had he lived in such a way that he just deserved for the Lord Jesus to forgive him for the way that he had acted and responded there in that courtyard? No. A thousand times, no. And listen, neither can we. You nor I can never atone for our sins. You and I can never make up for the stuff that we've done that's so horrible. You and I, when we have denied our Lord in the way that we have responded or the way that we've acted, either implicitly or explicitly, have no ability to make up for it. Our only hope rests in the fact that we have a great, and mighty high priest who when we have failed never fails us. That leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning. Brothers and sisters, the message of this passage and the message of the gospel is simply this. As a disciple, even when you fail the Lord, there is still hope because Jesus Christ is the true high priest who will never fail you. So let me ask you, is Jesus Christ your Savior and Lord? Have you repented of your sins and have you trusted in Him to save you? Are you one of His disciples? Because one day you will stand before Him and when you do, you will be judged based upon whether you have received His offer of grace and trusted in Him. And therefore, I appeal to you, do not continue to resist Him and to dismiss Him. Maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you would claim, hey, I am a disciple. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. But maybe you would also look at your life and you would be honest and say, but I have flat out blown it. Maybe your story is that you have trailed too far behind the Lord. Maybe you've gotten yourself way too familiar with the ways of the world. Maybe out of fear or in a desire to be accepted, you have silenced your witness and your testimony for Christ. Perhaps you bought into the thought that it's just too high, too high of a cost to pay. If so, then, then let me say this to you. Such a transaction in which you trade Jesus for anything else in the world, whether that is security, or, or friendship, or comfort, or some form of temporary happiness, whenever you, whenever you trade Jesus for any of those things, no matter what it is, I want you to know such a transaction will leave you weeping bitter tears. 
And so I would say to you today, repent. Repent and turn back to Christ. Let me end by saying this to you, that forgiveness and restoration is possible and available. Your bitter tears caused by your failure will be met with forgiveness and restoration because Jesus Christ is the true high priest who never fails and who will never fail you. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank You for Your goodness and Your mercy. I thank You that I can stand before a group of people and be honest and say that I have traveled the road that Peter was on and I have experienced Your forgiveness and Your restoration. And I pray that there will be many others whose testimony is like this, that they too will be able to clearly declare that testimony to others. Not so that there would be some way in which Peter would get the glory, not some way that I would get glory, but that you, our one and only true high priest, would get all the glory and all the honor because you alone are worthy of it. Thank you for what you have done for us on the cross and what you continue to do for us each and every day as you draw us closer to you. I pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.